Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, which summarizes the Christian faith. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 7. That's on page 524 of your books of praise. And we're going to look this afternoon at the second half of Lord's Day 7. Last week we saw the first half. So we'll start in question and answer 22. There, the question is, What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the Gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? And there follows the Apostles' Creed, which we'll uh, recite or sing later this afternoon. So far then, the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're taking a second week or second afternoon to think about the meaning of faith. That was the question we asked uh, last, last week. What is faith and why does it matter? Uh, and this is an important thing to work on and to study through because faith is a word that we use a lot. Uh, even culturally, more broadly, outside the church, faith is a word that is oft, often used, but not necessarily rightly understood. Uh, even, even non-Christians will agree that faith is a good thing, something we should celebrate, faith But that should make us question, given that they're non-believers, it should make us question, are we talking about the same thing? That makes it a study worthwhile in itself. Uh, So last week we focused on the question, uh, in particular, what must a person do to be saved? Uh, Knowing that the answer uh, is is that we are saved by faith in Christ. Uh, We saw that because Jesus Christ came, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, rose to new life, uh, that does not automatically mean that every human being is saved. But rather, those who believe in Him are saved. So we, we talked about what, what are the, what's the gospel command or the gospel call in the New Testament. And we saw that it comes down to different words. Sometimes it's repent. Sometimes it's believe. Sometimes it's be baptized. Uh, there are these different commands. Uh, but they all come down to this concept of faith. Believing, hoping, trusting in Christ. Uh, The Bible used different phrases, but it's referring to the same uh, concept, the same attitude of the heart towards Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about, as Reformed people, we talk about being justified by faith, that's what we're referring to, that attitude of the heart that receives Christ, believes His Word, and trusts in Him. Uh, We saw also last week that true faith is more than merely intellectual. Uh, In fact, unbelief is also more than merely intellectual. Both faith and unbelief are matters of the heart, matters of uh, what we love, what we desire. Uh, They will rule also what we believe. Uh, and, And we also saw then that where there is true faith, there is a change of life. True faith bears fruit. And so that gives us a picture of what what does true faith look like. 
Well, this week, uh, having given that broad summary, what we want to do this week is sort of hone in even deeper on the concept of faith and specifically look at the content of faith, the content of faith. What is it that, as Christians, we believe? Uh, I phrased the question in the, in the title of the sermon, What Must a Christian Believe, And that's the way that the catechism also uh, phrases it. So if we're saying that faith includes belief of certain things, uh, and that's an essential part of faith, then what specifically are we to believe? Now this is a really important and an oppressing question, both within and outside of the church. Uh, again, non-Christians are very happy to talk about faith as something that's, that's good, something that's uh, inspiring or, or desirable. But when you dig in, you find that their concept of faith is a faith that's devoid of content. It's a faith without content. It's just faith in the abstract. Uh, so I've heard it said before, uh, as long as you have faith, it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you have faith, it doesn't matter what you believe. Now, as we think about that, we probably first want to take a step back and think about that. That in itself is a statement of belief. It's a statement that excludes those who disagree with it. Uh, there are some who would say, no, it does matter what you believe, and they're saying, no, that's wrong. Uh, so that in itself is, is, uh, has its own intolerance. But besides that problem, it illustrates the point that the world thinks about faith very differently than we as Christians do. If the world can see faith as a good thing, even though it's without content, that's a very different kind of faith than we as Christians uh, talk about. To many in this world, then, faith is nothing more than a feeling. It's a feeling of hopefulness or positivity. Uh, But that's not what the Bible means by faith. Uh, So that's at least one reason why it's important to nail this question down. What is the content of faith? Because our our culture works with a very different understanding of faith. Uh, So we want to make sure, as we've been doing in the last months, we want to make sure we're hearing the gospel on its own terms, not on our terms. We're letting Scripture, God's Word, define how we think and what we believe. It's also a pressing question within the church... Because we are often and increasingly, in this, uh, as we Christians become a minority in our culture, we're often faced with the, the question, who stands with us and who are we to regard as standing against us or outside of us? Uh, what sorts of beliefs fall within the, the camp of Christianity? That's an a, a inter-church question, a question that happens within the church. Uh, to put it in, in contemporary Christian parlance, uh, what, are, what doctrines are salvation issues? I'm sure you've heard the term before. What doctrines would we consider salvation issues? Uh, what are those, those core doctrines that we say you must believe in order to be considered a Christian and, importantly, in order to be saved? Uh, so if we're saying faith is necessary to salvation... And acceptance of certain truths is necessary, a necessary part of faith, uh, then what are those truths that we must accept? It's a logical question. Well, how might we answer that question? How would you answer that question? 
What must you believe in order to be saved? What core doctrines would you list? Now, we could probably, all of us, list certain truths that we would say this is essential uh, to the Christian faith. And that's probably what you would do. If, if you were asked that question by someone outside of, of, of the Christian faith, you know, what do I have to believe to be a Christian? You'd probably start with some, some essential, basic Christian doctrines that you would say these are essential to, to the Christian faith. Uh, you might say uh, you must believe that we are sinners, You must believe that Jesus is God. You must believe that Jesus died on the cross uh, for our sins and rose again uh, to to new life. And all of those, of course, are true. And all of those are certainly fundamental to Christianity. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Romans 10, we, we read that a moment ago, he actually summarizes it in an even more succinct fashion. Uh, In Romans 10 verse 9, he simply says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, how's that for a salvation issue? Two simple beliefs. Jesus is Lord, and God raised Him from the dead. Well, the thing is... The more you think about that, if you take some time to think through that, if we're going to say these are our core truths, you realize you're going to have to start adding things to the list. Uh, If you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, you must also believe, by definition, that Jesus died. Now you've got another uh, core truth. And you must more specifically believe that He died for our sins. Otherwise, His death is meaningless, and so is His resurrection. Uh, And if you believe that he died for our sins, we can go on and on and on, right? Then you must believe that we are sinners. And if we believe that we are sinners, well, we must know that we're created by God. uh, And we're we're subject to God's law. Otherwise, sin uh, is a meaningless concept. And so on and so forth. The the list, as you pry it open, just gets longer and longer. It's very hard to nail down core truths. And that's the problem with approaching the Christian faith from that end, where your, your starting point is asking, what are going to be my bare minimums? What's the least common denominator? Well, obviously in your daily conversations, if someone asks you, what do I have to believe? You will have to start somewhere. And so like Paul, you'll find what you believe to be core doctrines, and you'll start unpacking them. But the thing is, you can't stop there. You don't say, these are my core doctrines, period, and now we explore no further. That's not how the Christian faith works. Uh, So the attempt, uh, which is a very common attempt to reduce the Christian faith to what we're going to call core doctrines, uh, salvation issues, and then distinguish that from non-salvation issues, is a very backwards approach to the Christian faith. Uh, We shouldn't be looking for an approach to doctrine that seeks to reduce the Word of God to what we would consider the bare minimums. It's a very prideful and it's a very unhelpful approach to the Christian faith. True faith believes and affirms and insists upon all that God reveals in His Word. We can't strike things from from that list. And and so when the catechism is faced with that same question, what must a Christian believe? It answers all that is promised us in the gospel. 
And then it puts the Apostles' Creed forward uh, as a summary of, of those promises. And actually, if you look at question answer 21, it's even more exhaustive, where it says, True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in His Word. You can't cut things out of that. You can't say, well, these are my salvation issues and these are not. If God's Word says it, I must believe it. Everything that God has told me. Now, as I say that, I'm not saying that there aren't main things and secondary things. Uh, You can't escape that that reality. So, uh, for example, in the Athanasian Creed, uh, we confessed that a few weeks ago, uh, it speaks of the doctrine of the Trinity, and it it says, uh, this is the Catholic faith. Unless a man believes it faithfully and steadfastly, he cannot be saved. Well, obviously, we would not say that of every single minute point of doctrine to which we hold. That, that would not be appropriate. Uh, we recognize there are going to be differences between Christians. There, and, and they are nonetheless true Christians. There are differences of opinion. There are differences of conviction that ought not to separate true Christian brothers. We do accept that. And, and that also is important. That matters. Uh, so, for example, Christ calls us as a church to pursue unity. He prays that His disciples would be one, even as He is one with the Father. And to pursue unity, you have to look around. And you find other churches and you say, is this a faithful church with which we should be sister churches? Do we extend the hand of Christian fellowship to that church? And as we do that, we will stumble upon some differences. You can't escape that reality. Uh, And and so to do that, to to be able to extend that hand of fellowship, you have to make distinctions between doctrines of primary orders and and secondary orders. Uh, We we have, on the one hand, no business extending Christian fellowship to any group that denies the very foundations of the Christian faith, the the divinity of Christ, uh, the the two, two natures of Christ, His humanity and His, his divinity, or, or the, the nature of the Trinity. Uh, we are not to extend Christian fellowship to any group that should deny the very foundations of our Christian faith. Uh, on the other hand, we are not to deny Christian fellowship or ignore the call to unity regarding other churches who do submit themselves to Scriptures, bear the marks of the true church, which we have also in our, in our confessions, while nonetheless differing on secondary peripheral issues, which there will be no matter who you are, no matter how close you are. Uh, so we must have, we are called to have, a sense of discernment, a sense of proportion, to be able to make those sorts of distinctions. That's simply part of Christian maturity, and it's unavoidable. You can't escape it, no matter who you are, no matter where you might be on the spectrum uh, of of how how strict you are in your doctrine. There will always be a periphery where where you would say, now these are peripheral matters. Uh, That will always be the case. Uh, and, And so it's part of Christian maturity to know how and where do we draw those lines? So that being said, if we're recognizing we're called to make those distinctions, at the same time we need to recognize that such distinctions between primary orders and secondary orders must never serve as an excuse 
for ignoring those parts of scriptures that God clearly speaks, uh, for ignoring, rejecting, or minimizing anything that the Word of God teaches. Although it's true that Christians can be short-sighted, illogical sometimes, we look at perhaps some other groups and we say they're short-sighted or they're illogical. Uh, Christians can be that. They can be naive, they can be pig-headed, and all of that can be true, and nonetheless they're still true Christians, We recognize that to be true, and we better, uh, because you think of how does Jesus look at us, and that description of short-sighted, illogical, pig-headed, we realize that very quickly applies also to us. Uh, So we, we give that same charity towards other Christians, recognizing they can still be Christians. All those things can be true, and yet... That recognition may never serve as an excuse to say, well, if, if it's okay to be that, then we don't have to listen to every word that God speaks. Uh, we, we are never then to reduce the faith down to bare essentials or, or a lowest common denominator that excuses unbelief or rejection of God's word. Uh, even if we can charitably grant that you can be wrong and still be a Christian, uh, which all of us will be on some level, uh, nonetheless, we recognize that doesn't excuse your being wrong. And we're still called to pursue obedience and submission to all of Scripture. Uh, So what this means is that we we are never to use these distinctions between salvation issues and and non-salvation issues uh, to excuse ourselves or anyone else from believing the Word of God and believing all that the Word of God clearly teaches. The smallest point of doctrine, whatever it may be, uh, that may appear to be totally inconsequential, is nonetheless a salvation issue if it's clearly taught in the Word of God and defiantly rejected by a heart that refuses to accept it and submit to it. That becomes a salvation issue. Not necessarily because of the issue in itself, but because of the heart that's receiving it and responding to it. Uh, So, to give an example, take something like the story of Joshua. Uh, In in Joshua 10, where where Israel is in battle with the Amalekites. And Scripture tells us that Joshua prayed for the sun to stop in the sky, uh, to stand still, to prolong the day, and God answered that prayer. Now we can stop, we can think about it. Uh, Can we think of any fundamental Christian doctrine that stands or falls on that story? Probably not, at least not immediately. And yet, it is clearly taught, isn't it, in the Word of God? And so, is it a salvation issue to accept that such a thing took place? It is. It is because God's Word clearly teaches us that it did take place. And the heart of faith, true faith, the kind of of faith by which we are united to Christ and saved, that faith accepts the Word of God as true. That then becomes an issue of our very salvation. True faith, then, is the sort of thing that we read about from Psalm 119 uh, that says, for example, in verse 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Your word is a light on my path. Not just the parts that I choose 
Not the parts that I think are are relevant. uh, Not the parts that I find believable. uh, But all, all of your word is a light to my feet. Uh, True faith recognizes I'm the one surrounded by darkness and it's God's word that illuminates me and my life, uh, not the other way around. I don't illuminate his word. His word illuminates me. Or, or true faith is the sort of thing that says in verse 108, teach me your rules. Teach me your rules. True faith wants to be taught. It's not, let me determine which of your rules I find acceptable, and then, uh, you know, in my own cultural context, uh, and then let me decide which ones I will follow and which ones I'm going to decide are are peripheral and non-salvation issues. But let me be taught. Teach me your rules. Let me and let my culture be ruled by you. That's true faith. Uh, or, or the sort of thing that says in verse 111, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. That's true faith. Not your rules are outdated, primitive, bitter to me, but since I have to, I'm going to keep them because you, you make me. But no, your, your, your rules are the treasure, the heritage of, of my heart. Uh, it's not, I'm going to do what I have to do to, to, to make the passing grade, that bare minimum to, to qualify as Christian, but rather, I want all of my life and all of my heart to be ruled by all of your word. That is true faith. Now, let me put forward maybe another case study, and perhaps this one is closer to home. The word of God is abundantly clear that men and women were created distinct, with distinct purposes and roles, and that the offices of leadership in the church are particularly reserved for those men whom God has called, and that it runs counter to the purposes of Christ to ordain women to those roles. Now, this, of course, is no denigration of of women. It's part of the the purposes of God that God has designed for each of the the sexes, each to have its own unique glory in reflecting the glory of God. Now, as you think about that, that rule, we could argue that this ought not to be a salvation issue. Uh, we could say it's a matter of periphery. And in terms of the doctrinal implications of a rule like that, it may not be immediately obvious at first glance uh, why such a point would matter. Uh, we, We may not see doctrines that stand or fall on such a thing. And yet, what is the attitude of the heart? Where is the heart of faith? The Word of God is sufficiently clear, abundantly clear on this matter, however peripheral we might think the matter to be. Uh, And and as much as it may put us at odds with the culture around us, uh, the heart of faith submits to the Word of God and says, this too matters to me. And that heart of faith is a salvation issue. Where there's a refusal to submit to the Word of God, it is no longer true faith. Uh, nor can we avoid this by, by saying, as, as some do, that while well, Scripture maybe isn't so clear on this issue, and in fact, you know, there are difficult questions and nuances and, and those sorts of things. Uh, the fact is, it is very easy to muddy the waters if you want the waters to be muddy. It, it's not a difficult thing to do. And that's true no matter what the issue might be. 
But muddying the waters and a desire to do so runs counter to the word of God and counter to the heart of, of faith. Uh, you, will, you will find muddied waters against literally every single command that in any given age has been found to be controversial, has, found, has been found to, to run counter to the culture of that day and age. You will always find uh, those, those muddy waters. The fact that people are asking, did God really say, does not mean that God was not clear when he said it. That is, of course, the question of the serpent in, in the garden. Uh, so again, the heart of faith is the heart that says, your word is a lamp to my feet. There are parts of me that don't understand it. And that is the evidence that I have yet to be further illuminated by it. I want to be taught by your word. Those parts that I love and those parts that I have yet to love. Those parts that I have yet to understand. Uh, so as Christians, we embrace, uh, when we speak of our faith, we embrace not, neither an ethereal contentless sort of faith like that of our culture, that of the world, uh, nor a, a, a limited, truncated faith uh, that reduces the Word of God to any bare minimum, but rather a humble and wholehearted faith uh, that longs for our whole selves and every part of our lives to be remade in the image of God by the power of His illuminating Word. That's also the uh, attitude that you find from communicated by the Apostle Paul to, to the young Timothy uh, in, in 2 Timothy 3, uh, where he urges this young pastor, Timothy, to, to not give up on the preaching of the Word. He says in verse 14, "...continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which, listen to this, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the Word of God makes us wise, and it's a wisdom that prepares us and leads us in the way of salvation. Uh, true faith has a daily dependence and hunger for the Word of God because it knows that the Word of God makes me wise. And so I will not teach the Word of God. The Word of God shall teach me. Uh, Paul continues in verse 16, uh, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's a conviction that comes from true faith. It says there is so much here in the Word of God and we are, are, are ready and willing to be taught by it. It says, I will be uh, taught by it. I will be reproved and admonished by it. I will stand corrected by it where it corrects me. And I will be trained in righteousness by the word of God. So that by it, I may become mature and equipped for whatever God calls me to do. It's that kind of faith that then believes the word of God as God shows us in the very beginning the way that He made us, the glory for which He created us. It's that same faith that believes the Word of God as it speaks about our, our tragic fall into sin, how far we've fallen from God's glory. It's that same faith that believes the Word of God as He opens up and reveals the way of salvation uh, all the way back in Genesis 3 already, showing there's hope, and it's hope that's fulfilled in Christ. And it's that same faith that runs then to the Savior 
whom God's word reveals uh, to Jesus Christ and then runs to him and clings to him for all that that faith is worth. And so it's by that faith that we're united to him both on the cross as well as in his resurrection uh, so that on the cross our sins are covered by his blood and in the resurrection our lives are made new and renewed and led uh, towards holiness. And, and then we go through the grave to resurrection, to eternal glory, living in every way by true faith. Amen.